don't be so hateful. The Insufficiency of Anti-Discrimination and Hate Crime Laws in Improving Trans Well-Being by Florence Ashley in the University of Toronto Law Journal, 2018. Quote, Transfeminism believes that a society that honors cross-gender identities is the one that treats people of all genders fairly because our existence is seen as problematic only when there is a rigid gender hierarchy, end quote. Emi Koyama, The Transfeminist Manifesto. Violence against transgender people is a pandemic that has been garnering some recognition by the Canadian government. Reacting to the recent spike in mainstream interest in trans bodies, the Canadian federal government has opted for a familiar route, passing Bill C-16, which has added the gender identity and gender expression as prohibited grounds of discrimination under the Canadian Human Rights Act, as well as aggravating motivations under the hate crime penal provisions of the criminal code. This bill comes as a legislative response to the alarming rate of harassment, discrimination, and violence faced by trans individuals in Canada. Particularly concerning is the 21.2% of trans Ontarians reporting having been physically assaulted due to their gender identity. By targeting discrimination, harassment, hate speech, and criminal acts, the bill takes a route previously taken to address racist and anti-gay oppression. It targets grave transphobic acts and seeks to discourage them by imposing financial and penal burdens on the offenders. Anti-discrimination and hate crime laws serve a range of purposes, and Bill C-16 is no exception. Nevertheless, the government's approach to anti-trans acts give the impression that by empowering civil and criminal courts to mete out sanctions, the well-being of trans people would significantly increase. The government has not yet set out a cogent plan for further addressing trans antagonistic violence, nor recognize that hate crime and anti-discrimination provisions are only a first step to improving trans well-being. In debates at the House of Commons, Minister of Justice Jody Wilson-Raybould framed the bill as a way to protect trans people in light of appalling statistics about the harassment, discrimination, and violence faced by trans people in Canada. Repeated denials that the law would merely be a symbolic gesture, as well as affirmations that the law is necessary given the difficulties faced by trans people, show the government's intent that the law have a tangible impact on trans well-being. Understandably, many Canadians expect Bill C-16 to be a leading solution to the problem of trans antagonism. Insofar as it is the government's primary response to the problem, the choice suggests that anti-discrimination and hate crime laws are effective and legitimate solutions to anti-trans violence. While anti-discrimination laws and non-carceral variants of hate crime laws are legitimate and justified legislative endeavors, I believe that the government overestimates the impact that such laws would have on the well-being of trans people, and that it would have a greater positive impact on trans well-being if they had expended their legislative and executive resources on other avenues. The government should prioritize those changes which would have the biggest impact, rather than focusing on hate crime and anti-discrimination laws. 
now that Bill C-16 has been passed, we should recognize the limited impact that the law will have and demand a cogent plan for further governmental measures to improve trans well-being. If anti-trans acts were isolated and irrational events, then perhaps anti-discrimination and hate crime laws would be the best we could do. But this is not the case. As a result of the complex social imaginary which supports trans-antagonistic acts, the current measures undertaken by the federal government are ineffective in addressing anti-trans violence and improving trans well-being. As I will argue in this article, much more efficient courses of action can be identified within the respective heads of legislative power of both the federal and the provincial governments. This leads us to the conclusion that legislative and executive resources should be directed away from hate crime and anti-discrimination laws towards those alternative avenues which have the added benefit of addressing the often invisible incursions on trans well-being which are not captured by a system directed at isolated acts. Although the laws may be a small part of the whole solution, both money and time are scarce resources, and focusing on hate crime and anti-discrimination laws at best delays and at worst precludes more beneficial changes. As has been highlighted in the case of same-sex marriage in the United States, single-issue agendas tend to leave activists exhausted after years of struggle, unable or unwilling to take up a new struggle while both governmental and public pressure for further progress wanes, complacency settles in, and vulnerable groups are left politically undefended. By sketching the limitations of hate crime and anti-discrimination laws as set out in Bill C-16, I hope to reinvigorate the ongoing fight for trans people's well-being in Canada and warn other jurisdictions about the risks of focusing on similar legal frameworks. I have opted to speak of trans-antagonism rather than transphobia for a number of reasons. First, the suffix phobia typically refers to extreme and irrational fears, phobias themselves being a form of anxiety disorder. Although the suffix, when used in terms like homophobia and transphobia, does not stand for fear of gay and trans people, it does connote irrationality and strong negative emotions such as fear and hatred. This connotation leads to much confusion along, among those who are not initiated to queer terminology. However, as I argue in this article, the attitudes which impact trans people negatively are frequently neither irrational nor hateful. On the contrary, some of the most insidious beliefs, such as the belief that gender is determined by genitalia at birth, cannot be accurately described as irrational or hateful, since they fit, they fit neatly into a complex social ideology about gender and are neutral underface in relation to trans people. By choosing the term trans antagonism and instead, I want to highlight how those beliefs and attitudes generate an opposition towards trans people while refusing to cast them as necessarily irrational or hateful. The term is also meant to have a wider breadth than transphobia and stands as the negative counterpart to cisnormativity. In speaking about well-being, I include such considerations as physical health, psychological health, 
life satisfaction, and the absence of oppression and subjugation. Freedom from harassment, discrimination, and violence is one of my organizing concerns in addressing the limits of anti-discrimination and hate crime laws. As a trans person who faces the threat of harassment, discrimination, and violence daily, I am deeply uninterested in legal changes that will have no concrete impact in my life. For many of those living in a state of primary emergency because of their transitude, the state of being trans, justice is not an immediate concern. Trans lives, rather than an abstract ideal of justice, should guide our approach. Although I will consider both anti-discrimination and hate crime laws, I will only concern myself with anti-discrimination laws to the extent that they are used to address concrete harms perpetrated by individuals. Anti-discrimination lawsuits can be used to seek compensation for harm done or can be used to promote institutional change. I will be concerning myself with the former. This reason is dual. First, my interest in anti-discrimination laws for the purposes of this article is limited to aspects shared with hate crime laws. Other aspects, while deserving of attention, are better left to a separate inquiry. Second, human rights tribunals in Canada have long recognized that transgender people are protected from discrimination under the grounds of sex, and that in this regard, Bill C-16 for the most part only repeats past jurisprudence. Impact litigation, which aims at institutional or legal changes rather than individual compensation, is already available without, without Bill C-16, and thus the primary benefit of the anti-discrimination provisions of Bill C-16 appear to be making individual enforcement more readily known and accessible. Third, impact litigation's benefits are hard to predict. Success depends on a number of factors, such as judicial attitudes and public support. In some cases, the impact can be immense, such as in XY versus Ontario, or they can also set back trans rights for a long time, such as in the case of Vancouver Rape Relief Society versus Nixon. Most of the positive institutional changes that result from impact litigation could be best implemented through the legislative process. Lawsuits are excessively long, costly, and do not represent all trans community views in the way that legislative consultation may. All subsequent references to anti-discrimination laws in the article should be understood as being limited in this respect. The starting point of my inquiry is an intuition that trans antagonism cannot be understood as an irrationally held antagonism. Instead, I argue that there is a disciplinary structure to gender which informs trans antagonism and from which trans antagonistic attitudes rationally flow. This intuition comes from a fourfold source my personal experience as a trans-feminine person of the social imaginary surrounding gender and trans existence. Second, trans-community wisdom regarding trans-antagonism. Third, empirical data on anti-trans harassment, discrimination, and violence. And four, the insights of critical race theory, feminist theory, and trans studies. 
society should not be understood as a generally trans-friendly world in which a few exceptions arise a violation of two trans bodies motivated by a fear or a dislike of difference. Trans people's experience of the social world is an experience of a sphere that is penetrated by attitudes and institutional categorizations that interlock seamlessly, leading to a recurring hostility that goes from minor invalidations to violent hatred. Trans antagonism is characteristic of the total social field and can be found in most individuals in some form or another. As Stevie Jackson states in the context of sexism, quote, gender and heterosexuality are sustained not only through structural hierarchies and social norms, but through our everyday sexual and social practices. The gendered heterosexual order thus requires our continual reaffirmation for its continuance, end quote. The argument applies mutatis mutandis to transantagonism. Transantagonistic attitudes often appear mundane and objective, hiding in their insidiousness. Harassment, discrimination, and violence are just their more egregious instantiations. Cracking down on these symptoms not only fails to curtail them, but also fails to palliate pervasive and insidious forms of transantagonism. The first part of this article will be dedicated to showing how hate crime and anti-discrimination laws may be criticized within a reformist framework. I will then expound on how an understanding of the structure of transantagonism reveals deeper limitation to hate crime and anti-discrimination laws, which cannot be met by mere reform. In the second part, I will set out the disciplinary structure which gives rise to anti-trans harassment, discrimination, and violence. I will argue that transantagonism should be understood as a direct result of a social system term, quote, sexually manipulative and sexual assault normalizing heterosexuality, end quote, herein after manipulative heterosexuality. In the third part of this article, I will employ this analytical framework to highlight the ineffectiveness of anti-discrimination and hate crime laws by themselves in alleviating anti-trans violence, and I will identify a broad range of actions which would drastically reduce trans antagonism in Canada. Trans antagonism is a multifaceted scheme of subjection which includes a number of subsystems including that of manipulative heterosexuality. My analysis will be centered on manipulative heterosexuality due to both the standalone value of understanding systems of oppression, as well as the emancipatory potential of an, of an analysis focused on the given system. Although manipulative heterosexuality is not the only source of transantagonism, beliefs in the inferiority of the feminine being another one, for instance, it is one of the main ones and will be the focus of this article. An exclusive focus on anti-discrimination and hate crime laws maintains a facade of equality which obscures the violence and inequality inherent in society's understanding and ordering of trans existence. On their own, they're a poison gift which fails to alter the material conditions under which trans people live. Worse, 
they create a perceptual barriers to further trans emancipation by protecting the minority of trans people who can readily access legal and criminal institutions, only metaphorically extending this protection in the social imaginary to all trans people by drawing on the symbolic power of formal equality and the rule of law. In day-to-day -day life, those laws fail to protect most trans people. Part 1. Reformist Critique of Hate Crime and Anti-Discrimination Laws Anti-discrimination and hate crime laws tell us a story of how anti-trans harassment, discrimination, and violence happen. Perpetrators of violence are bad apples and their acts are calculated and malevolent. The character structure sets up a duality of rationality and irrationality. Offenders irrationally hate certain groups of people but engage in rational decision-making processes insofar as they are responsive to reasons and in particular to the threat of sanctions. While these stories sometimes also concern themselves with agents who are not presumed to be rational in their decisional process, conjuring tropes of mental illness, head crime laws as deterrents are primarily geared towards people for whom the threat of punishment is an effective deterrent. Where perpetrators fail to respond to this additional incentive, incarceration incidentally provides protection. In the archetypical case, we are advised to view violent behavior as gratuitous acts motivated by bias, prejudice, or hatred, contrary to the warrants of rationality and in which offenders do not have a personal stake. In other words, it paints transantagonism as a set of aberrant, irrational, and exceptional attitudes and views the problems with transantagonism solely in terms of the resulting violence, discrimination, and harassment as targeted by anti-discrimination and hate crime laws. These laws are warranted because there will always be people hostile to difference, and transitude is just another axis of difference. Solving the problem is about blocking those aberrant attitudes from materializing in tangible, isolated behaviors. We must act at the level of choice. In Dean Spade's words, quote, in this misunderstanding, structure or systemic racism is rendered invisible. End quote. The comment applies equally to transantagonism. The bad apple model fails to explain why various groups suffer from disproportionate levels of violence while others do not. The distribution of vulnerability does not accurately track the proportion of the group within the broader national population, nor are oppositional attitudes proportional to a lack of exposure to trans people. Why are trans people specifically targeted for violence instead of any other form of difference? Why do black trans women disproportionately suffer from physical violence, despite the fact that white trans men suffer from similar levels of harassment? Why is the persecution of trans people accompanied by rigid narratives of deceit? The bad apples model of trans antagonism is not competent at answering these questions. First, 
deployed in an inaccessible civil court system, anti-discrimination laws do not provide a viable mean of redressing discrimination. Invasions of privacy and civil law assaults remain difficult to litigate given the financial and temporal barriers to access. The justice system is prone to excessive delays, and the cost of pursuing a civil lawsuit is frequently in the tens of thousands of dollars. While human rights commissions occasionally support lawsuits, they have insufficient resources to support the majority of cases and tend to favor clear-cut cases of discrimination over complex ones, allowing more devious employers to evade lawsuits by citing other motives such as merit. Hiding one's trans-antagonistic motives under another guise disarms anti-discrimination laws. As prejudiced service providers and employers grow concerned with accusations of discrimination, they can simply opt to obscure the reasons for their decisions. Despite almost every single trans person I know having suffered from harassment or discrimination at some point, none has launched an anti-discrimination lawsuit to obtain reparation for the harm they have suffered. The prevalent impression I gather from Canadian trans communities is that anti-discrimination lawsuits are not viable tools for addressing the trans antagonism faced by members of these communities. Given the widespread poverty in the trans community, as well as the inaccessibility of the justice system, with over 55% of transgender people in the United States earning less than 25000 thousand dollars annually, a percentage that translates into a similarly high degree of poverty around transgender Canadians, the law is largely inaccessible. Secondly, hate crime laws also suffer from enforcement-related pitfalls. Hate crime laws are rarely enforced. Violence against transgender people is not taken as seriously as violence against cisgender people, leading anti-trans assaults and murders to be less investigated, perpetrators to be less frequently apprehended, and accused to face reduced punishment. Police officers themselves frequently misgender trans victims and blame them for the crimes they suffer when they are not themselves the perpetrators of harassment, discrimination, and violence against trans people, a more than frequent occurrence. Besides being symptomatic of the widespread inadequate service of transgender populations, the negative experience trans people have had with the police leads to a majority of trans people being uncomfortable asking them for help when needed, which is only compounded by the variety of other reasons that leads trans people to underreport crimes against them. The underreporting of crimes, coupled with the inadequacy of the police and judicial involvement with trans victimizing criminality, creates barriers to the effectiveness of hate crime laws within a reformist perspective. This runs in parallel to the inefficacy of anti discrimination laws and of the justice system in addressing discrimination, invasions of privacy, and civil law assault. Is the solution then to bolster the current system and to address the specific flaws which precluded its proper functioning? Adopting a radical perspective grounded in an understanding of manipulative heterosexuality, the answer must be no. Part 2. 
sexually manipulative and sexual assault normalizing heterosexuality. In the first subpart, I will describe the system of manipulative heterosexuality. I will describe how it attributes availability to bodies, designating them as sexually available to cisgender heterosexual men on the basis of appearances and demeanor. I will then explain how the habitual attitudes about gender reduces gender to genitals at birth. Finally, I will argue that trans people are seen as deceivers because of their gender presentation. In the second subsection, I will explain how multiple forms of trans antagonistic violence arise from the ascription of deceit to trans bodies. The system of manipulative heterosexuality is highly gendered, since manipulative heterosexuality motivates cisgender heterosexual men, it will in turn impact transfeminine and transmasculine individuals differently. As a result of transantagonism, this analysis is more applicable to violence against transfeminine individuals than against other trans people. Subpart A, a system of sexual oppression. One, the justificatory imaginary, rape culture. The justificatory imaginary on which manipulative sexuality relies on is known as rape culture in feminist circles. The term is used to refer to the manifold ways in which sexual violence is justified or excused, subsuming it under the category of normal, acceptable sexual behavior. It operates by classifying bodies as sexually available or unavailable to cisgender heterosexual men on the ground that certain appearances and behaviors, including geographical location, notably proximity to clubs or presence in areas known for sex work, are communicative of sexual availability to varying degrees. Short skirts and smiles are read not as enacting basic autonomy over one's self-presentation or friendliness, but rather as indicating sexual availability. In its most absurd variants, merely having large breasts, something most people have little control over, or being black is interpreted as indicative of sexual availability. Availability associated gender expression and behaviors are, of course, encouraged among women. Availability, an imposed status which is justified by mistaken assumptions regarding the communicative content of the nonverbal, privileges appearances and behaviors over affirmative expressions of consent. Yet we should not understand this attribution of availability as causing isolated sexual assaults. The role of availability is not measured in individual events and the presence of availability-associated behaviors and expression is not a predictor of sexual violence. Public inquests into the clothing and demeanor of sexual assault victims attests to the power of the justificatory imaginary, mobilizing a perverted version of the presumption of innocence to overlay accusations of sexual assault with a mist of defensibility. Availability plays a major role in muddying the waters after the fact, allowing offenders to evade consequences for their acts. Because anyone can be accused of availability after the fact, all accusations of sexual assault are thought to be suspect. It comes as no surprise that being married to the perpetrator or failing to sufficiently physically result, resist precluded sexual assault convictions in the criminal law system for a long time. 
being married or not saying no sufficiently loudly in the perverted logic of the law indicated sexual availability. Only after tireless work by feminists, which led to the evolution of social attitudes, have those cases been recognized by the law as not being indicative of sexual availability. Despite legal and social changes, the attitudes which undergirded those laws have manifested themselves in other social relations. 2. Naturalizing intercourse The habitual attitude about gender tells us that there are only two genders, that gender is invariant, and that it is determined by genitalia. As a result of the social desirability of reproduction, the system of manipulative heterosexuality deploys the habitual attitude about gender so as to enforce cohesion between gender presentation and genital status. Genital status is not being directly appreciated, and instead gender presentation serves as a communicative intermediary in securing knowledge about genital status. Whether accurate or not, Knowledge of genital status enables the classification of individuals as women or men as potentially available or not. Animosity against trans people is shrouded in a narrative of unnaturalness that centers its notion of the natural on the reproductive. Much of, quote, society's stigmatization of transexistent is partly due to the fact that we mess with our reproductive organs, end quote reminds us Emi Koyama. And even when specific trans individuals have no intention of undergoing hormone replacement therapy or genital reassignment surgery, treatments which sterilize, there's often an assumption in anti-trans discourses that all trans people elect to undergo those treatments. Koyama also notices the link between anti-trans attitudes and the subjection of women's reproductive capabilities. Quote, such hysteria over our personal choices is fueled in part by society's taboo against self-determination of our reproductive organs. Like women seeking abortion, our bodies become an open territory, a battleground. End quote. The history of trans healthcare is shrouded with hostility surrounding quote, end quote, messing with our reproductive organs. Magnus Hirschfeld, an early advocate of genital reassignment surgery for transgender people and who arranged the first documented genital reassignment surgery, that of Dora Richter, in 1931, was denounced by Adolf Hitler as, quote, the most dangerous Jew in Germany, end quote. Early attempts at genital surgeries for trans people in the United States were jeopardized because, according to future California Attorney General Edmund Brown in 1949, genital surgery would constitute willful destruction of healthy tissue that would hamper the person's ability to defend themselves in combat, which potentially opened surgeons up to criminal prosecution. William Blackstone even included castration on his list of procedures that would constitute criminal mayhem. Many surgeons refused to perform gender reassignment surgeries. Harry Benjamin's first trans patient, Sally Berry, had her already approved genital reassignment surgery vetoed by the Wisconsin Attorney General in 1948 on the basis that it would have constituted mayhem and Alfred Kinsey, who was the leading medical authority on sexuality at the time, endorsed the position, 
confirming that such surgeries were in his opinions disabling and interfered with reproductive capabilities. Many trans women overcame this obstacle by illegally seeking out an orchiectomy, as subsequent vaginoplasties were not perceived as involving risks of criminal prosecution. 3. The putative deceptiveness of trans bodies and the roots of trans antagonism. Manipulative heterosexuality distributes social value in terms of the cisgender women with whom cisgender men have had intercourse. Cis men who engage sexually with more or more attractive cisgender women win. Since social value is desirable, manipulative heterosexuality motivates. As a rule, trans women do not seek to deceive people into having sex with them or to mislead people about their genital history for reasons other than personal safety or to avoid differential treatment. However, due to trans people's resistance to the habitual schema of gender presentation, heterosexual cisgender men tend to categorize trans women as sexually available, trans men as sexually unavailable, and non-binary trans people according to their gender presentation. Deviations from cis-heteronormativity as an instance of deviations from norms are sensed as a wrong wanting retribution, and this wrong must be righted. The mere disappointment of expectations cannot explain violent reactions to trans bodies. Even when trans individuals are forthcoming about their transitude or are readily assessed as trans by those with whom they interact, a process known in the community as clocking, violence and harassment remain common. Trans existence poses a symbolic threat to the system of manipulative heterosexuality, an insidious form of sexuality closely tied to personal value. Readily ascertainable, Binary gender is the bread and butter of manipulative heterosexuality. If trans individuals can pass as cisgender, everyone's status as sexually receptive, that is, as potentially sexually available, is undermined. If trans individuals exist, then essential biological understandings of gender must be wrong, and everyone's gender is threatened meaning that manipulative heterosexuality becomes increasingly unworkable. Misgendering is a diluted response to the same threat. Intentionally, it serves as a basic denial of authenticity, which seeks to expose trans people as deceivers. In routine forms of misgendering, the trans person poses a symbolic threat to the notion of gender, rather than posing an individual threat to the culprit's social status. Despite a difference in degree, misgendering evidences the same underlying belief system as certain other forms of trans-antagonistic violence and perpetuates the same system, which regularly takes a toll in trans lives, even when the recurring emotional violence of misgendering does not by itself precipitate trans-suicide. Trans women pose a distinct threat to cisgender men beyond the symbolic threat posed by trans existence. To the extent that gender is understood as a genital-centric institution, 
trans women marked as available threaten the masculine cisgender heterosexual male subject as his social status may be undermined by sexual interest in and sexual activity with trans women. Cis men who date trans women are stigmatized and accused of being gay. They have their sexual orientation and masculinity questioned, and the media tends to revile famous men who date trans women. Analogously, although to a lesser extent, cis women who date trans women are frequently stigmatized within the lesbian community for not being lesbian enough. The existence of trans women threatens the heterosexual status of cisgender men as being delineated by manipulative heterosexuality. The man who brutally murdered Islan Nettles in 2013 said that his masculinity was in question. Quote, I just don't want to be fooled. My pride is at stake. End quote. He had initially attempted to flirt with her before realizing that she was trans. Moreover, trans women are not seen as passively posing this risk, but rather are seen as actively lying about their gender and womanhood as implicated by the heterosexual schema, which is about sexual availability. A mischievous motive is implied. Trans women who superficially adorn woman-like presentation, but are men underneath it all, are seen as trying to deceive straight men into having sex with them. Following the 2002 murder of Gwen Araujo, a trans woman living in the United States, the perpetrators argued that they should be convicted of manslaughter instead of murder due to Araujo's so-called deception. After a jury deadlock during the first trial, board perpetrators were found guilty of murder at their second trial. This type of legal argument, colloquially termed transpanic defense, attempts unsuccessfully to satisfy the legal conditions for provocation, a concept which also exists in Canadian law. The defense has yet to be argued in a Canadian context. In the US, the defense has yet to be used successfully. Nevertheless, the attempts to use it attests to the strength and prevalence of the belief that trans people are actively deceiving others. Although both trans women and trans men frequently face allegations of deceptiveness, trans women face the bulk of threats and violence in this regard. Anti-trans violence is gendered, with the intersection between transitude and womanhood attracting the most attention and ire. In a world which sees quietus as a means of acquiring personal value, we can make sense of the conservative concern over proximity between trans men and cis women in gender-segregated spaces. Trans women are imputed sexual or fetishistic motives because of this sexual schema within which gender takes on meaning. With regards to public accommodation facilities such as washrooms and changing rooms, the fear is that trans women are trying to gain unfair access to cis women's bodies, a fear driven by the association between genitalia and the role of men in sexual dyads. In these narratives, cis women are reduced to little more than objects of property. Cis women are weak and exist for sexual possession, whether in actuality, in potentiality, or symbolically as a class. 
the concern is not for cis women's sexual autonomy, as these same groups and individuals typically oppose access to abortion, sex education centering communication, and affirmative consent, and initiatives which address the prevalence of sexual assault of cis women by white cis men. Rather, it is feared that the value of cis women will be diminished if they either have sex or are raped. This would correspond to a diminution of cis men's value as they derive more value under the system when the woman with whom they engage sexually meets antiquated standards of purity and chastity. Narratives on bathroom inclusion reveal a conception of gendered value and motivation which is grounded in male access to women's bodies. Bills seeking to prevent trans women from entering the correct bathroom often include enforcement mechanisms which encourage gender policing. For example, the Kentucky Student Privacy Act, which was defeated in the Kentucky House of Representatives, would have implemented a form of peer surveillance. Those reporting trans students who entered bathrooms consistent with their gender identity, rather than the ones corresponding to their gender assigned at birth, would be rewarded up to $2,500. The law would have encouraged crowd enforcement of strict gender roles by simultaneously declaring trans bodies alien and rewarding those who identify and punish nonconformity. Subjective perceptions of nonconformity serve as the measuring guide to identifying trans bodies. The enforcement system therefore encourages heightened scrutiny and the subjection of gender nonconforming students to harassment and sexual violence, notably genital exposure. In such a toxic school environment, it is difficult to imagine healthy exploration of gender expression and gender identity. Instead, the situation reifies and perpetuates strict gender roles and discourages queerness. Subpart B. Enforcing the System. Oppression of Trans People. 1. Normatively Motivated Violence. Value has a metaphorical instantiation. We organize values around imagined archetypes to which we subsequently compare ourselves and others. What would Jesus do? Jacob Hale speaks of the, quote, non-transsexual male, heterosexual, middle class, or higher, able-bodied Christian, end quote. I would add, neurotypical and white. Proximity to this ideal is the standard of personal value reigning over Euro-American societies. It has an impact on our interpersonal relationships in two ways. First, it affects how we relate to others insofar as our personal characteristics must be maintained socially through our actions. And secondly, it relates to how we evaluate others' personal value and assess their violability. The directedness of these two prongs, whether self-regarding or other-regarding, has an effect on trans-antagonistic motivations. Interactions which threaten the status of the subject as a masculine heterosexual man cause stronger reactions than interactions which do not, although in all interactions, trans people are credited with less social value 
and are seen as deserving less respect. The two patterns of trans antagonism differ. Trans women are seen as deviant and as threatening, to mark others also as deviant. As Sarah Lamble reminds us, quote, to be misread as gay is not a trivial mislabeling of identity, but a significant disruption of the dividing line between self and other, end quote. By declaring trans women, quote-unquote, deceptive, and by assaulting them, cisgender heterosexual men seek to displace imputed homosexual guilt by painting themselves as cheated and as thus faultless. The assault confirms their own position as heterosexual men who were deceived while also punishing trans women for their so-called transgression. It enacts, quote, disavowal through violence. Quote, to brutalize another and recount it with pride is an, exer- is an exercise in identity formation that reaffirm the perpetrator's sense of self as dominant and superior, end quote. In the United Kingdom, the law itself paints trans people as deceptive, with trans people who do not disclose their transitude uh, being at risk of having their marriage annulled or of facing criminals' charges for sexual fraud. In the second category of trans-antagonistic violence, it is the ascription of subhuman status to trans people that motivates the violence. Genitals position individuals as men or women, placing them in the sexual schema. Sexualized people are seen as less deserving of empathy and respect. Julia Serrano observed that, quote, there is an extensive body of psychological research that shows that when people are sexualized, they are not treated with empathy, are not taken seriously, and are seen as less competent and less intelligent than those who are not sexualized, end quote. The structure of manipulative heterosexuality is at the root of the relationship between dehumanization and sexualization, because it creates a hierarchy of individuals based on sexuality and conceives one pole in terms of agency and the other in terms of sexual instrumentality. Sexualization drags individuals back into this normative ordering. Nonconformity of gender presentation serves as the visual cue, establishing the person both as trans as well as gay independently of actual sexual orientation. Trans bodies become alien, other, and unworthy of respect, justifying and warranting harassment. Through the attack, the contrast between the victim and the attacker confirms the later as normal, valuable, and worthy of respect and bodily integrity. This is also frequent motivation for discrimination and harassment because trans people are understood as subhuman through ascriptions of hypersexualization, mental illness, and sheer abnormality, they are subjected to rejection and insults. Of the reported trans murders in 2015 in the United States, we see that 73% of those murdered were black women and fewer than 14% were white women. The 73% of murdered black trans women is roughly 5.6 times the demographic proportion of black persons in the United States. Uh, 
whereas the 13.6% of murdered white trans women is roughly 4.9 times lower than the demographic proportion of white women in the United States. In other words, black trans women are murdered at a rate 2,744% higher than white trans women. Given the foregoing analysis, this would be explainable by the devaluation and over-sexualization of black female bodies. While it remains unclear which proportions of murders relate to this over-sexualization, pending a thorough analysis of the causes of trans murders, it remains that bodies most strongly imputed availability are disproportionately vulnerable to cisgender heterosexual rage. Blackness uniquely magnifies the threat of trans bodies in the cisgender heterosexual imaginary. Black trans women's reliance on the sex trade due to intersecting axes of marginalization certainly contributes to their increased vulnerability as well. Clearly, trans antagonism and trans misogyny on their own do not appro appropriately capture the role of racism in sex work in anti-trans violence and nor does racism by itself explain the phenomenon. We are faced with transmisogynoir, a form of oppression speaking to the unique reality of black trans women. 2. Gendered violence against trans womanhood. If woman is the category of persons delineated as sexually receptive within a manipulative heterosexuality excusing and normalizing sexual violence, and if trans women cannot be legitimately sexually receptive because of the genitalia with which they were born, then the labeling of trans women as deceivers and as quote-unquote really men is unsurprising. Trans antagonism is not an isolated form of bigotry towards people who are unlike cisgender people. It is a reaction to the challenge to this system of identifying targets of sexual misbehavior that is posed by trans existence. Violence against trans people is gendered and so is our analysis. Men and women, masculinity and femininity, are subject to different norms and values and thus trans antagonism does not affect trans masculine and trans feminine individuals in the same way. The gender differences and violences faced by trans men and trans women attest to a reactive pattern in anti-trans violence. A major script of violence against trans women arises from a need to reassert one's heterosexuality and masculinity. The concern is over the predator's appearance vis-a-vis -vis society. An audience is needed and, as expected, trans women are primarily assaulted in public spaces. In a recent analysis of eyewitness videos, Witness Media Labs confirmed that the majority of filmed attacks against trans feminine individuals were in crowded public spaces. Trans men, on the contrary, are punished for failing to lab label themselves as sexually receptive and adopting availability-associated appearances and behaviors. No audience is needed, and as expected, Trans men are primarily assaulted in private spaces with few bystanders. Gender enforcement plays a role in segregating public and private spheres, giving the public sphere to men while women are relegated to the private sphere.
describing gender bashing, that is to say, assaults against gender non-conforming individuals, Viviane Namaste explains, quote, In this light, attacks against lesbians and gay men can be interpreted in terms of a defense of the public as that domain that belongs to men, and heterosexual men to be precise. Entrance into the public sphere is secured through the enactment of a sanctioned gender identity, preferably within the context of a heterosexual dyad. Couples who violate this prescription, and perhaps especially transgender people who walk alone, pose a fundamental challenge to public space and how it is defined and secured through gender. The enforcement of gender norms against gay men and women parallels the enforcement of gender norms against trans women and men and augments our understanding of the localization of violence for communicative reasons with one of space as gendered mimicking the relationship between the self-regarding and other-regarding prongs of trans antagonism. Whereas trans women are subjected to forced genital exposure and violence because they allegedly misrepresent themselves as sexually receptive, patterns of violence against trans men are different. In pre-university educational settings, trans men experience slightly more harassment but trans women face significantly more physical and sexual assaults by both students and teachers. More trans women than trans men leave school due to harassment, financial barriers, or discrimination, hinting at harsher experiences. Similarly, misgendering, invasions of privacy, and harassment in the workplace plague all trans people equally but trans women face disproportionately higher rates of physical and sexual assaults. Trans women often suffer from both sexual and physical violence when cisgender heterosexual men learn that they are trans. Trans men are not said to misrepresent themselves as sexually receptive, but rather as sexually unreceptive. Thus, forced genital exposure and physical violence for them is frequently supplemented by rape in the case of trans men who have vaginas. Namaste explains this point well. Quote, when transgender men are assaulted, for instance, rape is a routine part of the violence they endure. This suggests that gender functions not merely as a cue to point uh, to identify potential victims. Trans men who are raped are told through the act of sexual assault that they are really women and they will be treated as such. Biology is destiny. The act of rape functions as an aggressive reinscription of the trans man's individual biological sex and social gender. End quote. While acknowledging that trans women suffer from high rates of sexual violence, we must distinguish sexual assaults occurring in the context of sex work as well as sexual or romantic relationships from those motivated by self-regarding assertions of social status by cisgender heterosexual men. In contexts of forced genital exposure, forms of degrading sexual violence other than penetration against trans women are likely more common. For these reasons, we cannot understand trans antagonism as a form of irrational hatred. The concordance between anti-trans belief systems and violence militates against an understanding of trans antagonism as mere xenophobia. Were trans antagonism mere xenophobia, we would expect experiences of harassment 
discrimination and violence by trans people to be lower and to be similar to those experienced by other marginalized groups of the same size. This is not the case. In addition, the distribution of all categories of hostile deeds among gender lines should be close to or equivalent. This is also not the case. Violence against trans women of color and trans sex workers would additively combine trans racial and sex workers' susceptibility to violence, whereas the subjection to, violent, uh, to violence that is actually faced by trans women of color and sex workers is off the charts due to the standing of sexualization in the heteronormative schema. In other words, the arrangement of trans antagonism belies its putative irrationality. We can reconceive the transgression of transitude as a movement not from gender to another, but rather across a boundary of social power to a site that threatens the very authority and legitimacy of gender oppression. Transantagonism, then, is a rational reaction, and will not recede lest we recognize it as such. Part 3. Legal Implications of Manipulative Heterosexuality In this part, I will contrast the bad apples model expounded in Part 1 with the disciplinary model of transantagonism. This disciplinary model, which is drawn from our exposition of manipulative heterosexuality, will serve as the starting point for a radical critique of hate crime and anti-discriminatory laws. In the last subpart of this section, I will use this disciplinary model to sketch possible responses to trans antagonism. Subpart A, the disciplinary model of trans antagonism. Manipulative heterosexuality tells us a more complicated story about trans antagonism than the bad apple model does. It flips the duality of rationality of that model. Perpetrators of anti-trans violence, discrimination, and harassment are not typically individuals who coldly calculate the risks of punishment against the motivating force of bias, prejudice, and hatred, outputting a carefully crafted decision. The archetypical case is rather one in which impulsivity reigns over the chronology of action, and emotions are informed by pervasive social structures. As I have described above, the first subtype of anti-trans violence is motivated by a perceived threat to the offender's status as a heterosexual man, while the second subtype sees trans people as subhuman. And the later subtype, escalation of commitment, that is, a pattern of decision-making in which prior actions motivate escalating hostility, frequently drive the chronology of violence. In cases of discrimination, which are addressed by anti-discrimination rather than by hate crime provisions, this later subtype is predominant. Employers, service providers, and lessers rarely feel threatened by trans people, although their behaviors and words betray a dislike of them. Conceptualized in this fashion, trans-antagonism must be addressed at the level of values acting on desire rather than on choice. Borrowing from Dean Spade, a pivotal inspiration for this section, I term this model the disciplinary model of trans-antagonism. It belongs to the scheme of what Spade calls the disciplinary mode of power, referring to the ways in which, quote, 
racism, transphobia, sexism, ableism, and homophobia operate through norms that produce ideas about types of people and proper ways to be, end quote. In the disciplinary model, trans-antagonistic attitudes are not aberrant, irrational, or malevolent. If trans-antagonism is explained, it is as the rational development of a social organization which distributes value through the process of heterosexual male access to cisgender women's bodies. The ideal men and women promoted by manipulative heterosexuality generate self-directed and other-directed patterns of violence which prey on trans bodies. Hate crime laws and anti-discrimination laws interface differently with the disciplinary model because the model is two-pronged. Stronger feelings associated with threats to heterosexual status tend to produce direct violence, whereas weaker feelings in comparison tend to provoke discrimination and harassment. Generally speaking, threatening individuals elicit stronger reactions than do individuals that are just perceived as subhuman. Although not all violence is due to personal threat, nor is all discrimination and harassment due to attributed subhuman status, a strong level of convergence is anticipated. The hypersexualization and pathologization of trans people and their dehumanization more broadly plays a significant role in discrimination and harassment. Both attitudes come to the fore when we are confronted, for example, with the claims that trans people are perpetrators of sexual assault and are unsafe around children. Despite their inaccuracy, these claims are commonly given a justification for the exclusion or differential treatment of trans people. Acting at the level of choice or acting at the level of values are the two options given respectively by the bad apples model and the disciplinary model. As I will argue, it is on the level of values that we can most efficiently intervene. Subpart B, a radical critique of hate crime and anti-discrimination laws and of state complicity. The inadequacy of anti-discrimination and hate crime laws runs much deeper than the reformist critique suggests. Reformist approaches, which shun radical redistribution of material and ideological capital, adhere to the bad apples model and blind them to the inadequacy of the model's presupposed picture of hate-motivated harassment, discrimination, and violence. Armed with the disciplinary model, Anti-discrimination and hate crime laws can be recast as surface-level management of ostensive ills which fail to themselves address the underlying roots of those ills. As Evan Vipon eloquently asserts, quote, in passing laws that are reactionary rather than preventive, the government offers a band-aid solution under the guise of equality, end quote. Critical scholars have extensively highlighted the inadequacy of anti-discrimination and hate crime laws. Trans, queer, feminist, and critical race scholars have criticized these laws for their inefficiency in deterring violence against disenfranchised groups and for reducing marginalized experiences to a single axis of oppression despite the interrelatedness of oppressive system as the disproportionate violence faced by black female trans sex worker evidences. 
as Dean Spade observes, quote, discrimination and violence against people of color have persisted despite law changes that declared them illegal, end quote. Applying the disciplinary model of trans antagonism, the inefficacy of such laws becomes evident. They presume an inaccurate pattern of human behavior. Assaults on trans people do not follow from a period of deliberation during which the would-be offender looks up laws and estimates his chance of being prosecuted as well as the length of the sentence that he expects to receive if found guilty. Trans antagonistic defenders, quote, do not read law books before committing acts of violence and choose not to engage in bias-motivated violence because it carries a harsher sentence, end quote. Hate crimes are impulsive, reacting through a threat to one's sense of social worth, or occupying the next step in an escalating chain of hostile behaviors against those believed to be subhuman. In the vast majority of cases, perpetrators are likely to be fully aware that their actions are illegal and punishable by a lengthy jangle sentence, or will result in an order for a hefty pecuniary compensation. Their motivations, especially when engendered by concern for one's social value, are stronger than any immediate concern with punishment. In the case of murder, even the risk of a life sentence is not sufficient to dissuade them. Where the act is discrimination, few are deterred for much of the same reasons. Believing that trans people are subhuman or that they pose a threat because of mental illness or sexual deviance, People react impulsively to their presence and maintain an oppositional attitude towards them. Punishment is a dubious deterrent, as few people are aware of the typical sentence length or compensation amount for most illicit acts, and no doubt even fewer engage in a utilitarian calculation of punishment versus benefits. If life sentences fail to deter murders, why should we expect hate crime and anti-discrimination laws to work? There is no good reason to think that quantitatively increasing punishment by a few years would impact the outcome of the decisional process, especially given how little known those laws tend to be. As V. Pond emphasizes, quote, hate crime laws offer inadequate protection because they are reactionary. They seek to punish the perpetrator, who has already committed an act of violence instead of seeking to prevent future acts of violence, end quote. Widespread knowledge of the presence of anti-discrimination laws might nevertheless have a greater deterrent effect than hate crime laws. Acts of discrimination tend to be motivated by weaker emotions and occur over a longer time span, thus mitigating the impact of impulsivity. However, Short of a successful, structured educational campaign, anti-discrimination provisions are bound to retain a modest reach. People cannot be influenced by the law if they do not know it. Rationales focusing on the motivational impact of hate crime laws on police officers, prosecutors, and judges overlook the structure of trans antagonism. In institutional atmospheres of widespread hostility to and disregard for trans lives, nebulous governmental mandates to take anti-trans violence more seriously will not perceptibly affect enforcement. 
governmental mandates do not propose punishing agents of the state who fail to enforce them. Given those agents' propensity to disregard their stated function, as shown by pervasive racial profiling, police brutality, and recurring cases of sexual assaults by police officers, hopes of changing police behavior through symbolic measures appear misguided at best. However, if enforcement were to be increased, the question remains whether this will improve trans well-being, since my argument against hate crime laws apply to increased enforcement as well. It bears repeating. Hate crime laws have not had measurable impacts on violence against groups long protected under them. Changing societal perceptions and public outcry in this respect are far more effective. At its worst, arming prejudiced agents of the state with further discretionary powers exacerbates the discriminatory impacts of the current justice system and contributes to the over-incarceration of black and indigenous populations in Canada, a trend which is worsening. Co-optation of the trans cause by the industrial prison complex and the collab collaboration of trans people with it has been explored and critiqued by Dean Spade in his book Normal Life from a United States standpoint. His arguments apply equally to Canada. As he points out, hate crime laws are disproportionately used against members of marginalized groups. If balancing our commitments to fighting the over-incarceration of black and indigenous peoples with our commitment to fighting trans antagonism is a challenging but crucial concern, the debate is a non-starter considering the ineffectiveness of hate crime laws in deterring trans antagonistic behaviors and improving trans well-being. Such laws create a, create a schism between white liberal trans people and trans people of color. Given the emancipatory power of solidarity and empathy, this schism further disempowers trans communities while providing only deficient protections. Anti-discrimination and hate crime laws fail to alter the underlying societal norm giving rise to harassment, discrimination, and violence against trans people. Although sentencing plays a role in communicating governmental and judicial disapproval, its impact is mitigated by its failure to address the underlying causes of trans-antagonistic behavior. Symbolism fails to counterbalance the strong motivational force of trans-antagonism as a set of attitudes deeply entrenched in structures of social value that are reproduced by governmental and non-governmental actors alike. Conflicting state directives are produced as the government, on the one hand, tells citizens that trans lives must be respected, while, on the other hand, creating the preconditions of trans violence by turning gender into an essential and static legal category based on genitalia at birth, which it then uses to segregate trans people in a variety of social environments. It is unsurprisingly difficult to find a governmental form that does not ask for gender. By being cons consistently produced as a category in the administrative realm, gender becomes understood as a neutral feature of social life. Insidiously setting up and teaching the habitual attitude about gender to people, sometimes quite literally, insofar as governments write school curricula. The habitual attitudes lies there 
as the seed which will eventually sprout into the forms of trans-antagonistic behaviors. The othering of trans bodies occurs not only through forms which make use of gender, but also through policies which specifically exclude trans people from their gender. Birth certificates are drafted on the basis of genitalia at birth and are notoriously difficult to change, although recent provincial-level legislation has made it easier in most provinces. Canadian Blood Services, working under the aegis of Health Canada, added criteria for trans blood donors in 2016, which classified trans women as men or women based on genitalia, reinforcing the notion that trans women who have penises are indeed men. By being requested in all forms of governmental forms, regardless of content, gender is inscribed as a particularly important fact, leading to an implied shared understanding that certain things, like gender, are just necessary information in social life. Far from merely recounting natural facts, quote, administrative systems that classify people actually invent and produce meaning for the categories they administer, and those categories manage both the population and the distribution of security and vulnerability, end quote. By creating and maintaining these categories, norms of behavior are created. Don't be trans, and if you are, better not look trans. Unsurprisingly, trans activists have long objected to the administrative institution of gender and have made some strides in fighting it. A myth of, of state innocence is promulgated through anti-discrimination and hate crime laws. They give us a story in which the state is a neutral actor that serves as the arbiter of injury, punishment, and justice, instead of showing it more accurately as one of the contributors of subjugation and injustice in trans lives. Harassment, discrimination, and violence become, quote, an exceptional moment, not an everyday one, end quote. Isolating and individualizing violence, systemic factors become invisible and allegations of state guilt are shunned. The process is perfidious. By promising legal equality to trans individuals who are ready to conform to disenfranchising standards of respectability, these standards are recast as neutral. Collaboration with oppressive institutions within the justice system, most notably the police and imprisonment, as well as our acutely classist civil legal system, is welcomed as indicia of progressiveness. Having cast away doubts of inequity, the state puts forward a semblance of fairness while it naturalizes oppressive structures that disproportionately harm trans people. As Dean Spade summarizes, quote, we are still invited to demand that trans people are human when human is still defined through colonial norms of race, gender, ability, and immigration status that actually limited the invitation to a very smart, small part of the trans population, end quote. In Canada, the workings of this system becomes evident as we observe the liberal federal government's defunding of HIV community organizations, a decision that deprived Action Santé Travesti et Transsexuelle du Québec of most of its funding, despite their essential role in promoting the health and well-being of Montreal trans communities.
the government's failure to repeal the previous government's anti-sex work laws in timely fashion, and its refusal to adequately support trans migrants who still cannot change their name on legal documentation in Quebec, also leave activists with a bitter taste given the government's claims of being trans-friendly. By focusing on the symptoms of trans antagonism experienced by a handful of trans people, rather than on the root causes of trans subjugation, the state forecloses resistance strategies that focus on material and ideological emancipation. In the midst of this opposition, staggering rates of anxiety, depression, suicidality, and exclusions from social life within trans communities are left unaddressed. From anti-discrimination and hate crime laws to plausibly reduce the incidence of trans-antagonistic acts, the law would have to be widely and continuously publicized and the associated sentence would have to be excessively high. As important as reducing harassment, discrimination and violence against trans people may be, excessive jail time is disproportionate, inhumane and socially costly flying in the face of every pr prison abolitionist bone in my body. We should instead seek to identify alternatives which show, do concern and care for everyone in society. To eliminate trans antagonism in all of its forms, governments must devote efforts to address the broader social system within which trans antagonism is implicated as well as engage with its own complicity in creating and maintaining various systems of oppression. We must begin by understanding that trans-antagonism is not rooted in individual animosity towards trans people. Rather, trans-antagonism is rooted in the overvaluation of cis bodies and the devaluation of trans bodies in a cis-heteronormative system which promotes and facilitates sexual access to cis women's bodies and their, their reproductive capabilities. Only by understanding this idea can we begin to plan more effective legal reform strategies and resistance opportunities geared towards trans well-being. Instead of acting at the level, level of offenders' choices, we must radically alter the normative underpinnings of social organization. Subpart C, Contending with Trans Antagonism. Can we do better than anti-discrimination and hate crime laws? Laws which fall short of their intended target, provided they're not harmful, may nevertheless be legitimate in deploying legislative and judicial resources if no more effective alternative exists. Although we have seen that such laws may be harmful due to, to their role in over-incarceration and in presenting governments as fair, although they decline to address systemic inequality, the mere fact that more effective alternatives exist provides a strong argument against exclusively focusing on our legislative and judicial resources on laws of these two types. Instead of employing anti-discrimination and hate crime laws as the primary means to address trans antagonism, the law should first seek to inquire into what makes people adopt trans antagonistic behaviors. If I am right in identifying manipulative heterosexuality as one of the roots of trans antagonism, then addressing manipulative heterosexuality will be pivotal to trans emancipation. 
undoing the system of sexually manipulative and sexual assault normalizing heterosexuality entails engaging fully with the continuing problem of sexism in society, notably by dismantling rape culture as well as disposing of gendered classifications in the administrative realm, especially where this classification is not based on gender identity. Over-reliance on the law and liberal conceptions of the role of government must be rejected if we are to address each of those intersecting systems of subjugation. The inclusion of trans people in anti-discrimination law should be understood as a supplementary mean of attaining well-being rather than as an end in itself and must be resourced accordingly. The role that anti-discrimination laws play in enabling impact litigation should not be discounted despite the limits of such litigation as an activist strategy. Although impact litigation was already possible prior to Bill C-16, this situation is peculiar to the Canadian context. In other jurisdictions, enabling impact litigation will likely turn out to be of benefit to trans people and will further sell apart anti-discrimination laws from hate crime laws. Unlike anti-discrimination laws, which will be useful in many contexts, hate crime laws may well be wholly unjustifiable given their disproportionate impact on people of color. With the analytical lens that has been developed throughout this article, three broad avenues of resistance can be elaborated. Knowledge, empowerment, and healing. Knowledge seeks to prevent anti-trans harassment, discrimination, and violence by identifying and nullifying the systems of social belief that generate trans-antagonistic attitudes. Empowerment seeks to create conditions within which trans people can escape harassment, discrimination, and violence without having to forego social benefits and socioeconomic resources. Healing seeks to alleviate the ills of trans antagonistic acts after the fact by meeting victims' psychosocial and material needs. At the level of knowledge, Curricula should be amended to include education on social diversity, including trans realities, gender identity, and sexuality, written in collaboration with trans communities. Where anti-discrimination laws are already in place, clear guidelines for interacting with trans individuals should be produced and widely publicized, and government-funded, community-written workshops on trans realities should be mandatory for the public sector, for regulated service providers such as universities, banks, internet companies, and telecom companies, and for licensed professionals. These workshops should also be made available to the broader Canadian society at a low cost. Media guidelines that address rape culture as well as trans antagonism should be promoted. Campaigns aimed at unteaching manipulative heterosexuality should be funded. Instead of increased jail sentences, people who commit trans-antagonistic acts should face mandatory, extensive education on trans-realities and issues, as well as therapy in the hopes of preventing recidivism. And other non-prison alternatives should also be explored. 
the content of all of these measures should be written in light of the functioning of manipulative heterosexuality and should address the othering of trans bodies within an oppressive scheme of access to cis women's bodies. At the level of empowerment, trans people must be given the opportunity to live environments where they are particularly vulnerable, reducing policing, placing trans prisoners in prisons which correspond to their gender identity and giving them access to medical care, fully decriminalizing sex work and providing alternatives to sex work for trans sex workers so that they're not driven into spaces where they are particularly vulnerable, decriminalizing HIV non-disclosure, increasing healthcare coverage for surgeries and facial hair removal, which would help trans individuals stave off violence, abolishing immigration enforcement and immigration detention, and funding HIV and trans community organizations are all measures for which trans communities advocate. Establishing a realistic list of priorities can be done through community consultations, as some of these changes are not feasible within the current political climate. Administrative bodies should also receive mandatory education on trans issues and welfare, work, and housing initiatives addressing trans poverty and homelessness should be set up by the, by the government. At the level of healing, organizations that provide supports for victims of trans antagonism should be funded by the government. Healing derives its efficacy by understanding trans antagonism as a pervasive ideological field which must be disrupted if trans victims of violence are to recover their self-worth. Since violence occurs in the field of devaluation, dehumanization, pathologization and invalidation, it is understood by victims as confirming social hostility towards transitude and frequently leads to the internalization of this hatred. This, in turn, can lead trans people to turn against others, appealing to norms of social respectability to distance themselves from those most directly targeted by trans antagonism. By helping victims see trans antagonism rather than transitude as wrong, the fundamental hostility of the world is diffused. This process affirms the emancipatory potential of trans people by denaturalizing trans antagonism, planting the seed of radical consciousness. Each avenue of resistance can be served by increasing funding to trans-driven community organizations and initiatives. Those organizations and initiatives are best situated to understand the needs of trans people, reach trans communities, and educate on their realities. Further discussions on the most needed governmental actions will be necessary, and trans community organizations will be essential in those discussions. Oppression comes in many forms. There is a distinct benefit in understanding how oppression of different groups arises, not only in terms of argumentative strength, but also in terms of our ability to identify further solutions. Empirical data on hate crimes and discrimination is flawed and scarce. Arguments about their inefficacy often rely on general accounts of offenders' psychology. By providing a theoretical account of how trans-antagonistic motivations lead to anti-trans acts, 
I have sought to bolster those critiques of hate crime laws and highlight tangible solutions to trans antagonism. Armed with this model, we can understand how talks of quote-unquote girls' bodies when referring to cis girls' bodies is not just invisibilizing trans people, but also playing a direct role in generating violence against us down the line. Trans antagonism is rational and must be confronted as a rational belief system. Manipulative heterosexuality attributes availability on the basis of appearance, Appearance as a communicative medium colludes with the habitual attitudes about gender to carve the deceit of trans bodies out of their otherness. Trans bodies are bodies that are socially coded as bodies that cheat men into sexualizing them, in contradiction to their gender assigned at birth. Trans bodies are produced as harmful both to normative social systems and to specific social actors. The same system of manipulative heterosexuality similarly generates the marginality of same-gender sexualities, of asexuality, and of intersex bodies because they challenge the subject positions of cis-heterosexual couples. Hate crime laws are woefully inefficient by themselves in improving trans well-being and addressing the problem of violence against trans people, no amount of fine-tuning will do. The adequacy of these laws is particularly evident in their inability to mitigate insidious forms of trans antagonism which, despite appearing trivial, are to blame for much of the difficulties trans people face in their everyday lives. Many measures are more effective than anti-discrimination lawsuits and hate crime laws in improving trans well-being and reducing anti-trans violence. In the words of Ta-Nehisi Coates, quote, the hammer of criminal justice is the preferred tool of a society that has run out of ideas, end quote. Though we may not be heard, we have yet to run out of ideas. Resources dedicated to legislating and enforcing such laws should be redirected towards those alternatives that address manipulative heterosexuality and the other roots of trans vulnerability. The complex social nature of trans antagonism creates new challenges for lawmakers who are required to move beyond legalistic approaches to social progress, as they have frequently been asked to do in the past with regards to sexism, racism, and homophobia. Anti-discrimination laws are useful. Gender market change laws are, are important. They make our lives easier and happier, but they're a far cry from eliminating inequality and violence. Lived conditions of trans people can be better improved through expenditures on healthcare, insurance coverage, education, criminal defense, prison gender segregation, information campaigns, economic support of trans-led research and activism, and global wealth redistribution. Ultimately, activist agendas should be guided by material conditions, not by legal abstractions. Given the distinct relationship between trans antagonism and misogyny, anything short of the elimination of sexism and a radical reordering of society will fail to eradicate trans antagonism. 
as Julia Serrano advocates, quote, because anti-trans discrimination is steeped in traditional sexism, it is not simply enough for trans activists to challenge binary gender norm, that is, oppositional sexism. We must also challenge the idea that femininity is inferior to masculinity and that femaleness is inferior to maleness. In other words, by necessity, trans activism must be at its core a feminist movement, end quote. Trans antagonism penetrates all spheres of society. Far from being an exception, it is an unavoidable experience for trans subjects. Limiting ourselves to anti-discrimination and hate crime laws would be a grave mistake. To engage trans realities, the fight against trans antagonism must be led on two fronts. Anti-neoliberal legal reform to meet our immediate needs, and radical activism to foster a better society for tomorrow. Both fronts must be informed by trans-led analysis of the roots of trans-antagonism. This article has provided an exploration of sexually manipulative and sexual assault normalizing heterosexuality, one of the various systems that govern the production of trans-antagonism in Canada. I hope that this inquiry will serve as an apt starting point for more judicious legal policy and will inspire legal actors to demand more of the federal government and of its provincial counterparts than the reforms recently adopted.